please stand for the reading of God's word. We have two readings today, and the first will be from Luke 8, which you can find on page 865 in your pew Bibles. This will be Luke 8, verses 16 through 18. No one, after lighting a lamp, covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Take care, then, how you hear, for to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. Our second reading is from Colossians 1, which you'll find on page 983. This is Colossians 1, verses 11 through 14. May you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Ray. Well, good morning, everybody. Thank you, Ray, for sharing. It's been really encouraging over the last month to hear uh, different folks share their testimonies. And I want to uh, give props to Christy Spader. That was her idea, and so she's been working hard to kind of arrange all of these. As we were coming into Christmas Eve, we were trying to find one more person to share their testimony, but everyone was out of town, and Christy and I said, well, we've always got Ray as a backup. This kind of was our thought. Because we were going to use staff next year to share testimonies, so we were trying to find congregants this year. But we couldn't find any congregants that worked out for this year, so we had to, had to fall back on Ray. But what a good testimony that was, uh, and it fits so well with the text uh, and the sermon that I prepared. It clear to the Lord and wanted to pair her testimony this morning and not saving it for later. So thank you, Ray, for, for sharing. But good morning to all of you. It's good to be here uh, with you celebrating the hope and joy of Christmas before the first service. Pastor Greg admonished all of us on the worship team to not wish Merry Christmas to anybody because it's not Christmas yet. So Merry Christmas Eve to all of you uh, this morning. But uh, good to have you here. And uh, I want to add my welcome to Pastor Greg's. If you're visiting, maybe you're a family member from out of town or you're a guest or a friend, we're very glad uh, that you are here this morning. Merry Christmas to you. And our theme uh, for Advent has been the light has come. And all throughout the Old Testament, God promised that his light would come into the world. And here we are in Advent celebrating the coming of the light in his son, Jesus Christ. So we've been exploring throughout this Advent season how the coming of Christ, God's light, into the world saves us from all the perils of darkness. 
Jesus is God's light into the world and saves us from stumbling around in the darkness, from perishing, from having a life without meaning or purpose. And it's just like the old gospel hymn says, when I was wandering in darkness away, Jesus, my Savior, I met because Jesus is the light of the world that comes to deliver us out of the darkness. But God's light isn't always a comfort. And in our text today, Jesus speaks of God's light in a bit of a foreboding way, as a metaphor for judgment. And what we're going to see in these two texts that have been read for us this morning, the Luke text and the Colossians text, is that Jesus is the light of God who saves us from the light of God. So we'll make that hopefully make more sense as we progress. But let's start with our text in Luke chapter 8, verses 16 through 18. So turn back there if you're not there already. But Luke 8, 16 through 18, earlier in the chapter, Jesus has been telling a parable. Then he's explained the parable. And now he's talking to his disciples. And he wants to make sure that his disciples are listening to and paying attention to the parable. So in Luke 8, 16, Jesus uses the metaphor of, of light to speak of God's judgment. In verse 16, he talks about the purpose of lighting a lamp. It says, if you light a lamp, the purpose is so that you would see what would otherwise be obscured. So you don't light a lamp and then cover it up with a jar, Jesus says, or you don't put it under a bed. That would defeat the purpose of lighting the lamp. Now, we don't use oil lamps anymore, but imagine turning on the light in your hallway and then duct taping a thick woolen blanket around it, right? That wouldn't make any sense because the point of turning on the hallway light so that you can see if there's anything in the hallway when it's dark. You don't want to stumble over anything in the hallway. Or we could say you don't want to stumble upon anything in the dark hallway. Proverbs 26, 1 says, like a dog returns to his vomit, so a fool repeats his folly. And I have a sermon illustration that I was trying to decide whether I was going to use or not. But it involves dog vomit and foolish folly. And I decided since there's a verse in the Bible about both that justifies using it here. So I'm going to tell you a story. My, we had a family dog growing up. And uh, it was a good enough dog as far as it went. But it would occasionally get into the trash. And it would eat things that it was not supposed to eat. And then it would throw uh, up what it had eaten in kind of piles, like nice cohesive piles around the house. And so when this would happen, uh, my mom would instruct myself and my two brothers to clean up what the dog had thrown up. And um, uh, our dog had done it again uh, in the upstairs hallway one day. And so my mom had told the three boys to go clean up the mess in the upstairs hallway. And you know how it is if you're an employer and you tell a group of people to do something. Everyone's like, it's someone else's job. So none of us cleaned up the mess in the hallway. And when my mom came up to go to bed that night, it was still there. And so she re-instructed us again to clean up the mess in the hallway. And then she went to bed. And again, we neglected to clean up the mess in the hallway. So in the dead of night, we heard all of a sudden a blood-curdling scream from the hallway. And it turned out my mom had stumbled upon the mess in the hallway in her bare feet. 
Now, you might be thinking I'm telling you this story, and then the folly part of this story is we neglected to listen to my mom. But that's not the folly part of the story. The folly part of the story is she didn't turn on the light. Because if she had just turned on the light in the hallway, she would have seen the mess that was there. Now, the point that Jesus is making in this about turning on the light, that makes sense to us in our world. But Jesus' concern is not really about the lamps and the jars and the darkened hallways of this world, but of the world to come. And he's using light as a metaphor for judgment. So look back here at verse 17. Jesus says, For nothing is hidden that will not be manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Take care then how you hear. In other words, take care how you hear or listen to the parable that I've just told you. For to one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he thinks he has, will be taken away. Now, verse 17 represents an important transition in perspective. When you read verse 16, and the way that I even kind of set it up and explained it, we imagine ourselves as the ones turning on the hallway light in order to reveal the messes in the hallway. We're the ones turning on the light. But in verse 17, we realize that God is the one turning on the light in the hallway. And the mess that he's looking to illuminate is us. The light of God's judgment is such, Jesus is saying, that nothing will be hidden that will not become manifest. There will be no secret that will not be made known. Jesus is saying that the one who has, who has me, will be given more of me when the light becomes known, when the light shines out into the world. And the one who doesn't have me, even what he thinks he has of me, will be revealed to be false and taken away. Because a day is coming when the truth will come out, Jesus is saying. And this is why it's important that you listen to the parable that I'm telling you and the teachings that I give you. God will bring everything to light one day. So in 1 Corinthians 4 or 5, this is a common theme throughout the scriptures, but in 1 Corinthians 4 or 5, the apostle Paul says that God will bring to light the things that are now hidden in darkness, and he will disclose the purposes of the heart. And in Hebrews 4.12, we read that the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and it discerns the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And nothing, no creature is hidden from its sight. There's no way to evade this light but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So light is good and helpful if you're trying to avoid a mess in the hallway. But light is exposing and shameful if you are the mess in the hallway. And This is Jesus' point about the coming light of God and how it reveals all things. And isn't it the truth that many of us feel like we're the mess in the hallway. Quite candidly, many of us would just prefer that God keeps the lights off. Or perhaps 
really low dimmer switch, so you can't see too much. I think there's a lot of reasons why we might prefer that God keeps the lights off, but one of the reasons, I think, is because we've made messes in the hallway of our lives that we cannot clean up. Even if we tried to clean them up, we wanted to clean them up, we cannot clean them up. Jesus and Paul and the whole New Testament tell us that a day of God's revealing judgment is coming in which we will have to give an account for everything that we've done. And that's a sobering reality. Now, Christians in Christ don't need to live in terror of the day of judgment, but it is a sobering reality to consider. Now, maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. Maybe you've come with a family member or friend, or maybe you're sort of Christian-ish, you know, you're sort of adjacent to Christianity, but you're not, you're not not a Christian, but you're not sure you would say you are a Christian. You're somewhere in the middle. You're not quite sure in either case that you buy into all that Christian morality and judgment stuff. Okay, and that's fine, and that's not a problem, and we're very glad that you're here this morning, but even for those who don't go all in on the idea of God's judgment and all the Christian morality stuff, all of us have things on our record that we wish we could scrub off. Things that we've done that we're ashamed of. Not even necessarily ashamed of in light of God's presence or in light of the thought of judgment, but ashamed of in our own hearts. Just because we ourselves really wish that we hadn't done those things, or said that thing. And I think that we feel those things, that regret, that unease most acutely when our actions, the messes that we have made, have harmed other people. So to go back to an illustration with my family dog again, I remember being in the backyard playing catch with my dad, practicing my pitching, working on my fastball. I must have been nine or 10. I don't know how old I was. But our dog kept running in the middle of the pitching lane. And so I thought that I would give him a shot across the bow to kind of like scare him that he should stay out of the pitching area. And I hit him right in the head with a league ball. And uh, he yelped. I know you, you all feel so sad. You should. It was terrible. And uh, he yelped and he put his tail between his legs and he went running off in the yard. And uh, I felt so bad as a 9 or 10-year-old, I started crying and I ran off, right? Because when you do something that hurts other people or other dogs, other creatures, right, the pain that they feel becomes your pain, right? And there's regret and you can't undo it. And if you've ever said something that hurts someone else or you've done something that hurts someone else, sometimes the wounds that we cause are so irreparable that there is nothing we can do to make things right. We've created problems that can't be fixed. Now, that's a relatively benign illustration, a kind of Hallmark Hall of Fame illustration because it's Christmas Eve. But some of us have harmed others, and not just the family dog, in very grievous ways, ways that have fundamentally damaged the lives of others. And some of us would literally pay a million dollars to have a redo on that. But we can't, and not even if we had a billion dollars, because what's done is done, 
And what's past is past. And it can't be undone. And whether or not it distresses you because you think about your regrettable actions being on God's record book or just because it's on your own personal record book, the fact remains that you don't know how to get free of what you've done. And maybe you've tried to atone for past wrongs by being good enough. But the fact that your past wrongs still trouble you, the fact that you still try to keep them hidden, the fact that you don't want anyone else to really know about your past wrongs, it's a sign that your efforts of self-atonement have not been entirely successful. And what Jesus is saying in Luke chapter 8 is that there is coming a day when God's light will expose all the things that we have tried to keep hidden in our life, all the things that we would prefer to remain hidden. Now, if that were the whole message of Christianity, if that's all there was to Christianity, we've done things we regret, God's judgment is coming, and you're going to be sorry, and so am I. Let's pray and go home. Merry Christmas. Right? If that was the message of Christianity, it would be a hopeless message. But there's more to the story of the gospel. That's why we're here on Christmas Day celebrating the gift of Christ. And Christ is the more to the story that resolves that problem. So now we turn over to Colossians 1, chapter uh, 11 through 14. And I picked this passage because it has the theme of light still in it. And I want to connect and stay connected in this theme of light. But Paul is writing to the church at Colossae. And he's expressing to them in the early part of chapter 1 how grateful he is for their faith and their reception of the gospel. And he's in the middle of a prayer, which is what we're picking up in verse 11. He's praying for them. And listen to what he says. He says, May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. He has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And he's saying to the believers there at Colossae, he's saying, you were in the land of darkness. But now God has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And he's delivered you from this domain of darkness. He's transferred you to the kingdom of his beloved son, his beloved son, whom we read all throughout Scripture, is the light of the world. So God has given us the light of the world in Christ, transferred us out of darkness and placed us into the kingdom of his son. So the light of God that sees all and knows all, before whom everything will be revealed and before whom nothing is hidden, he has qualified us in Christ to live in God's kingdom of light. Well, how has this happened? Well, look at verse 14. Verse 14, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. The word that's translated here as forgiveness, it means to send away. And Paul is saying that God has the power to send away our sins. He has the power to expunge our record. In the next chapter of Colossians, Paul goes on to write, And you who were dead in your trespasses 
and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our debts, all of our trespasses. He has canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. We cannot cancel the record of debt that stands against us, but God can. Through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, God has canceled the record of debt that stood against us. So listen, all of us have things on our record of debt that stand against us that we can't get free from. Think about how this works in the natural world. If I commit some felony and it goes on my record, I do not have the power to scrub my record clean. I can't do it. And the reason that I can't scrub my record clean is because in a very real sense, it's not my record. It's the state's record about me. The state is the one that owns the record. And because it's the state's record, only the state has the power and the right to scrub the record clean. And it's the same in the supernatural world. You and I are not the owners of our record. God is the owner of our record. And that means only God can scrub our record clean. And the good news is that he has done so in Christ. So in Psalm 103, the psalmist writes, The Lord does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. He sends away our sins. The wonderful news of the gospel is that God not only can scrub our record clean, he has done so in Christ. The gospel is the good news that God has expunged the record of debt that stood against the world. And all that is needed now for us to benefit from it is for us to believe it and receive it. So imagine you had a dark mark on your your record that the state then graciously expunged, but you didn't know it or perhaps you didn't believe it and you continued to live as though your record was still marked. You'd be not benefiting from the clemency that had been offered to you. I'm reading a quote here I want to give you from Charles Dickens, not Dickens' A Christmas Carol, because any old pastor can quote from A Christmas Carol on Christmas. I want to be more sophisticated than that. So this is a quote uh, from one of Dickens' other novels, Little Dorrit. Maybe some of you have read, but in Little Dorrit, there's a character named Mrs. Clenham, and she's a character that is bent with old age and bitterness and brittleness and unforgiveness. And years earlier, and the story goes, she had committed a secret and grave injustice against Little Dorrit. That's the young, impossibly good heroine of the story. All of Dickens' heroines are impossibly good. And Mrs. Clenham had lived with a tortured conscience ever since she had committed this wrong. But rather than confess her sin, she had lived her whole life full of self-justifications and brittle righteousness trying to atone for her sin. But at the very end of the story, she is unmistakably confronted about her secret sin. It comes to light. And so she has to go to Little Dorrit to acknowledge her wrong. But when she goes to Little Dorrit, she does not ask for forgiveness. 
She will not ask for mercy. Instead, she offers justifications for her actions, and she vows to make amends. And the whole speech is full of pride and is full of self-justification and even self-loathing. And little Dorrit responds to Mrs. Clenham. She says, oh, Mrs. Clenham, Mrs. Clenham, angry feelings and unforgiving deeds are no comfort and no guide to you and me. Be guided only by the healer of the sick, the raiser of the dead, the friend of all who are afflicted and forlorn, the patient master who shed tears of compassion for our infirmities. We can be right if we put all the rest away and do everything in remembrance of him. So then Dickens continues on describing Mrs. Clenham's response. But Mrs. Clenham bent her head low and said not a word. And she remained thus until the first warning bell began to ring. Mrs. Clenham's life had been full of unforgiveness and it had made her brittle with her sin. And she refused to receive mercy from God and so she could not give mercy to others. And her whole life had been spent in this attempt to make her own record clean. And little Dorrit is here speaking the words of the gospel to Mrs. Clenham. And I'm here this morning speaking the words of the gospel to you. Do not try to clean your own record. You can't clean your own record. It might sound like bad news to you that there is a record of debt that God holds. Because why is God being all judgy? But it's good that God holds it. Because if he holds it, he can clean it. If you hold it, you can't clean it. We want it in the hands of someone who can clean it. And God cleans it for us in Christ. God loves you. So be free and accept the free, givenness, free gift of forgiveness in Christ that he has purchased for you at the great cost of his own blood. The wages of sin, the Bible says, are death. But the free gift of God is eternal life, Christ Jesus, our Lord. A gift to be received by simple faith, free of charge. Paul tells us that if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord, if we believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. Confess and believe. The gospel is as simple as that. To confess that we've made messes that we cannot clean up on our own, that we cannot get free of. To confess our need of God to expunge our record, to give us the forgiveness of sins, and then to believe that in the death of res and resurrection of Christ, God has freely forgiven us and welcomes us into the kingdom of his Son so we can dwell with his saints in light. Confess your sins and your need for God's forgiveness. Believe that God has forgiven you through the death and resurrection of Christ, and you will be saved, the Bible says. The prophet Isaiah, speaking the words of the Lord, says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. So I want to conclude by bringing together our two passages. The light of God's judgment will reveal all. This is the point that Jesus is making in Luke chapter 8. Everything that we've spent our lives trying to hide will be exposed. 
who we really are will be exposed. And we have good cause to be sober about the coming light of God's judgment. And yet, what we're reminded of in Colossians chapter 1 is that God is merciful. God is abounding in loving kindness. That he is the patient master who sheds tears of compassion for our infirmities. And he has given Christ on the cross to shed his own blood, to cleanse us from our sins and to cancel the record of debt that stands against us. When we receive his free gift of forgiveness, he brings us gently and kindly into his son's kingdom of light and he qualifies us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So all of which is to say, when we receive Jesus as the light of the world, the light of God in Christ saves us from the light of God's judgment. 